When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you don't have a clear curriculum for your classroom, it is so overwhelming to try to put that together yourself. Spending hours on Pinterest and Google, pulling worksheets and pulling pieces of curriculum together to make something that works for your classroom. That's why we created the Autism Helper Curriculum and now offer Curriculum Access. Curriculum Access gets you access to all levels and all subjects of the highly differentiated evidence-based Autism Helper Curriculum. You can have students working on letter identification and working on parts of speech at the same time in our easy-to-use curriculum. We currently have hundreds of teachers using Curriculum Access from all over the world with consistently rave reviews. I want you to join that group of teachers. Now is the time to ask your administrators for curriculum access. We have an email template ready to go so you can ask them to set up a demo. Your administrators can jump on a live call with our team members to see everything that's included in the Autism Helper curriculum access. Next year, let's reduce the overwhelm. Let's start the year out with a path and a plan and resources to meet all the diverse needs of your students. Let's make next year the year of curriculum access. Head over to the show notes to learn more. Hi, I'm Sasha Long, special ed teacher and board certified behavior analyst. Welcome to the Autism Helper Podcast. I'm here to explore different strategies to improve the lives of individuals with autism. Today, I am interviewing Shira and Shayna from HowToABA.com. I first came across some of their videos on Facebook, and like I've talked about a lot, I am a very visual person, so I love watching a video of someone explaining how to do something. And one of the first things that I noted was how much Shira and Shayna explained ABA concepts in a way that was really easy to understand, and I loved the format of their quick videos that gave an action item and a concrete idea that a teacher or a parent could easily utilize in their classroom or home the next day. So I thought they would be perfect podcast guests and we cover so much ground in this interview. We start by focusing on school readiness skills, but we really add in social skills, communication, and basically everything that ABA has to offer in relation to skill acquisition. So let's jump right in. Hi, Shira and Shayna. Thank you so much for joining us on the Autism Helper podcast. Hi, Sasha. We are so happy to be here. So can you, before we jump in, tell everyone a little bit about what you both currently do and what brought you to the ABA world? Absolutely. So right now we have a website called How To ABA, and How To ABA provides practical solutions for people in the autism field. 
Yeah, so we'll start by telling you a little bit about how we got here. So I'm Shira. I know there's a lot of SH names here. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, I'm Shira. I got into the field because I um, went into education. I was really interested in early intervention and working with kids um, who were really young. And I was assigning between a couple of different fields. I ended up in education and I was given a classroom of preschool students. And I was a brand new teacher and I felt totally unprepared. And I didn't feel like I had the tools to help these kids. Uh, I specifically had a couple kids in my class who, looking back, probably had some sort of special needs or needed a little bit of extra help. Um, and I recognized that, but I didn't know how to help them. And they, you know, weren't really able to be toilet trained. They couldn't answer WH questions, things like that. And I just felt like they were falling through the cracks. So I was looking for this solution and I ended up finding out about the field of ABA. And, and after that, like loved it. I felt like, wow, this is like the solution that everybody needs to know about and, and teachers need to use and parents. Um, I'm also a parent of three kids and I what became BCBA um, after my kids were like a little bit older. So I'm like, I wish I knew this when they were even younger. Um, so I just felt like it was such an amazing field of information um, that now I'm kind of going back and sharing with people about how great it is and getting the word out there. So you drank the Kool-Aid. I'm all in. <laughs> I started out in this field by accident, so I graduated a long time ago, and I knew that I wanted to help people, and that's why I graduated from psychology, and then I went into business and marketing because I had no idea what else to do, and I was talking to my friend's aunt, who was a doctor, and she said, well, have you ever thought about the field of autism, and I said, well, you mean like Rain Man? I had no idea what autism was. I had no idea what ABA was. So I started working privately. And in 1997, when I started, um, basically there was just kids working in their basements with ABA professionals that they'd fly in from wherever. So I think my mom for a few years was pretty worried about me. She thought I was babysitting after paying <laughs> for my university degree. Um, however, then I went down to the States and I did um, a some time in New Jersey at a center-based ABA program there. And it was phenomenal. I mean, New Jersey at that time was light years ahead of where we were in, in Canada. So I got a lot of my experience there. And then I came back up here and I wanted to make sure that we could disseminate that information that I had learned in the States to Canadians. So I worked at a center and then eventually went on my own. <clears throat> Now, I also have another company called Kid Mechanics, and we run two center-based programs and are opening up a third in September, so we're growing fast as well. And uh, a lot of my experience comes from teaching kids one-to-one um, -one and then working on school readiness as well. So, um, you know, our model is a one-to-one, but then we also do some integration into mainstream classrooms and um, trying to get social skills with some mainstream kids. Oh, I love that. I love having the combination of the school-based experience and then all of the great strategies that we can use in a more controlled environment like a clinic or the in-home. But teachers, can you pull from a lot of those strategies too and utilize a lot of those tools? So that's awesome. So right. So I... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> um, I actually um, work as a BCBA in similar. So it's a school slash ABA. So like both are available. Um, so I supervise a couple of special ed classrooms. Um, and you're right. It's like that balance of there being a classroom for the child. So it's not completely one-to-one -one, and also having the opportunity for group and school readiness skills is like a really nice balance. Yes. The best of both worlds. Um, so how did How to ABA come about? Um, so Shana and I met uh, probably like eight 
years ago or so. Um, and Shane actually did a lot of my training. So she was my supervisor and we started working together, um, doing a lot of home-based consulting, some school consultations. Um, and over the years we started like just creating programs and just, you know, collecting things that was good information and creating things that weren't available that we felt needed to be available, writing programs, making visuals, just collecting all of this stuff that we felt we used in our practice. Um, and then over the years, we were like, you know, there isn't enough sharing out there. There isn't enough collaboration among professionals. And it could be a really intimidating field, both as a professional and as, you know, a parent or a client or a teacher where we're not making ourselves as accessible as we can be or using language that makes us not seem like, you know, a little bit technical, I'll call it. Um, but we have to do better at sharing, uh, because the only, the, the people that are going to benefit the most are our clients and our students. And, um, we felt like if we could share all that information, then our students would be better off. So we kind of took all of that stuff. We, we call it, it's our drive because we share it on our, on our drive. And we said, you know, we want to just share this with people. We want to make it available for people. So we started our blog, how to ABA, where, um, we write weekly blog posts on a different topic and we share downloads and information. Um, and then we also have our community of members where we, um, have even more downloads and we do monthly CEUs. So we're just trying to spread the message of like, it can all be done in a really practical and doable and supportive way where we don't have to all feel like we're reinventing the wheel every time we have a client or, you know, a situation that we've never been given before. Yes. I feel like I literally could have said all of that that you just said. I so agree. And I will link your website and your Facebook page and all of that in the show notes. I like am pointing down, but there's nowhere to point. But in the show notes, I will link everything because everyone needs to check it out. I I really love the most is your videos because they're all under five minutes. And we all know like no one has time to like always sit and watch longer, more in-depth things. But I love the like quick, practical knowledge. Like a teacher, a parent could watch those videos and be like, oh, I'm going to go change this right now in my house or tomorrow in my classroom. Like it's all very user-friendly and action-ready. So I love that. That's great. No, I love that you Thank say you. that because that's really been our intention. We just finished recording a whole bunch of other videos that are coming out in the next few weeks. But we put a lot of thought into like, how can we make these big concepts really chunkable and doable and practical. So thanks. Well, that's a great transition right there because when I was looking through of, you know, what subjects we can talk about, I was like, but I want to talk about all of these. So hopefully <laughs> you can help me summarize. Um, but I think an overarching kind of topic to talk about, which is really not even a topic, but skill acquisition. Cause I don't know about you guys, but I, as a BCBA get asked a lot, like if all I do is behavior reduction, I was at an IEP meeting recently where I came in and introduced myself as the BCBA and the special ed director who should know better was like, Oh, that's weird. Johnny doesn't have any behaviors to reduce. And I was like, well, we're not working on behavior reduction. We're working on skill acquisition. So I think even just flipping that dialogue that, you know, BCBAs have a lot to offer when it comes to skill acquisition as well. As soon as people hear the word behavior analysis, they hear behavior and that's all they want to hear. And people need to remember that behavior can also be positive behavior, not just negative behavior. And, you know, when you're looking at those skills in a classroom, absolutely, you need to look at behavior. So not just negative behavior, but communication. So teaching and increasing communication, 
increasing independent skills as well. Um, those are all things that are needed within a classroom environment. Yeah, and I think some of the also frustrating thing is not, it's even when there is a kid who does have negative behavior and it's frustrating to get the people on the team to not only call me when they need a consequence. It's like, well, my kid is having a negative behavior. What do I do now? I'm like, that's not really everything that I do is not ending a behavior. I'm like, you have to be able to look at it, the full package that we offer, because every behavior that's happening is really a result of a lack of a skill. So we have to go back to the very beginning and say, what skill is this kid missing before we can even get to, well, now what do you do after the behavior? So that sometimes gets lost in the fact where they don't want to do all that, you know, antecedent work and the proactive work, but that's really what's going to change the behavior. So I feel like if people can see the benefit in being proactive and teaching them the skills and the replacement skills, then a lot of the behavior would, you know, get managed. So that's so true. And I think so often in even a gen ed classroom or a self-contained, there's a lot of like little behavior problems, like not, not massive meltdowns, you know, not where we're utilizing some type of like more in-depth behavior plan, but those little, and I, I don't want to say the word annoying, but as a teacher, they're probably annoying, like popping out of the seat, calling out. So can you talk about how even behaviors like that are kind of missing some skills and what teachers can do to start to try to replace those with more positive behaviors? Yeah, totally. So, um, a lot of skills, that are required in a classroom um, are things like, you know, tolerating waiting, um, tolerating waiting, you know, getting your turn or tolerating when the answer is no. Um, One of the things that we see a lot is when there's, you know, a preferred activity and this is in any classroom. So coming inside from recess or ending computer time or something like that, where that time is over and the student has to give up a preferred activity. That's where a lot of like the negative behavior comes in. So having a skill like, you know, teaching them how to ask for one more minute or teaching them how to communicate what they need. Well, I wasn't done my game. Can I just finish this? And then, and then, you know, I could do what you want to do. Um, there's also so much about how you structure that time. So sometimes in a classroom, it could be as simple as, um, having the kid see, having the kid sit in a certain place so that he's not tempted to like nudge the kid next to him. Um, you know, setting up the environments that you're working more in small groups versus the entire group as a whole, like looking at the behavior as how can I help this student succeed versus how can I end the behavior? Sometimes being able to take the student's perspective is really helpful as well. So we need to learn that, you know, I've heard before, you know, you meet one student with autism, you've met one student with autism, right? (laughs) You know, everybody is different, you know, whether they have autism or they don't have autism, you know, everybody is different. So if we can get into the student's head somehow and take the perspective of the student. So the student walks into the classroom why are they feeling X, Y, and Z? Or why are they acting this way? What can I do to help with that situation? And one of the very first things is probably just to set expectations. So the expectations in this classroom are this, or the rules of behavior are this. And don't give them a huge long list, you know, two to three things. Here, do this. Um, You know, use visuals. Here's the rules. Here's the visuals around the rules. Here's what we're going to do first, next, last. So all of these things can be very, very helpful when trying to manage behavior. Now, do you recommend doing something like setting the expectations every day or at the start of the school year on a regular interval? 
I think it depends on the learners you have in the class. So definitely at the very, very beginning of the year, you're probably going to be doing it five times the very first day, um, using those visuals and going over them very, very often. Um, maybe having some type of group chant even and having the students chant <laughs> chant the rules if that's necessary, um, you know, and then maybe at the beginning of every day and then you know, obviously looking at that behavior, looking at behavior and seeing if it's improving over time. And if it's improving, then, you know, you're, you're able to guide your behavior based on that data. I think there'll be some rules that will stay like throughout, like those will be those three things that always happen in the classroom. Like you always keep your heads to yourself Mm -hmm. or like you always, you know, there's a rule in our school that um, only teachers open doors because when you have kids who are going to run away, That's the rule is teachers <laughs> open doors. Um, so those rules will never change. And then if there are some kids that might need like more specific rules, like, um, you know, if I need a break, I can ask for one or something like that. Then you can maybe put it on like a little, you know, visual or cue card on their desk. So that way it could be more individualized. But I think having a more general like classroom rules um, is something that will just be there and not change. So how do you work on, so you mentioned a little bit earlier, some of those school readiness skills like tolerating no and waiting. I see those two as like huge ones that I see a lot of kids struggle with. Like, personally, even like my own children struggle with that. Um, How can a teacher that has, you know, maybe a self-contained teacher that has, you know, eight to 10 kids and some paraprofessionals, how can they work on that kind of on an everyday basis with their class? So I'll tell you, one of the things that I hear a lot is, you know, he's having a meltdown and he didn't want to wait. And I, you know, I tried to show him why he should wait, or I'm trying to deal with it. I'm trying to explain to him the importance of waiting. They're trying to deal with it when the behavior is already happening. Um, and I think an important thing to remember is that when a child is in that mode or when they're already having a meltdown, or they're already having a difficult time, it's not the time to teach them. So the best time to teach the skill is at a different time. And I know like this is hard for a lot of like, you know, teachers to hear because it's just adding more work. Like I don't want to have to teach them something else. I just want them to be able to wait. Um, and this is where it, kind of the struggle is between as a behavior analyst, we want to be able to have a separate time to teach the skill and not only wait until it's already broken down. So I would say that you have to find time in your day to practice. And maybe this is every day at circle time, you come up with a different theme. Okay. The theme of this week at circle time is we're going to practice waiting your turn um, and do a lot of practice, do a lot of role play, um, and then do a lot of reinforcement. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Gregory, Gregory Handley has a really great article about teaching preschool skills. And, you know, he mentions preschool skills, but I think it's an article that every 
teacher should read, regardless of whether they're a preschool or not. And he says specifically that, that he's got 12 functional classroom skills that he teaches over a series of 12 weeks. And one of them is waiting. And what he does is he has a group chant and he says, you know, when I wait quietly, I get what I want. And he has all the kids shout it. When I wait quietly, I get what I want. When I wait quietly, I get what I want. And then he decreases that level. When I wait quietly, I get what I want. When I wait, and then he decreases it down to zero. And it's interesting because they, you know, they, he teaches kids to wait by just kind of shaking as they're chanting that in their head. Um, that's one really great way to teach waiting. And that would be outside of, of when the behavior is occurring. He's trying to be proactive about that. You know, another way to teach waiting would be to teach uh, students to learn timers, right? So time timers, some type of visual timer that students can have, can own so that they understand when they need to wait and how long they need to wait for. And then I think also like tell your student, like, you know, if they're on this level where they can understand, be like, you know, guess what? We're going to practice waiting. You're going to have to wait now because you want to go to the gym and it's not available for another five minutes. Here's our chance to practice. If you can wait, then you're going to get blah, blah, blah. So always thinking about what's in it for them, having it be um, as supportive as possible. So you're setting them up, you're priming them, you've practiced the skill and you have reinforcement. And so those are all like important pieces to remember. That's such a great way to look at it, to really think about practicing before the problem behavior has, which is really how we approach teaching all academic skills, right? We like practice and then we slowly like learn those skills and then we take the test. We don't just hand them the test and expect them to know it. So that's kind of a great shift in looking at how to teach those skills because you're exactly right. A lot of teachers and parents, we wait until there is that breakdown and then we're like, but what do we do now? versus thinking about it a few days ago. And everyone wants that magic answer. Like, but like, I I hear what you're saying, but I don't really care. I just want to know, what do I do right now? No magic answer exists. Like if this was easy to change, it would have been changed already. That's why the special ed teacher, that rockstar parent is there because it takes time. You know, it's going to, it's not an overnight fix. Right. And it's, it's important to remember also that in these moments, like the kid is probably struggling more than we are that we have to have the perspective of like, when it feels frustrating for us, we have to have, you know, sympathize with a child who's struggling. He doesn't have the skill or he doesn't have the language to be able to tell us what they want. So it's just an important perspective to also keep in mind. Yeah. And having a little bit of empathy, like when we, we run into situations where we don't know how to accomplish something and that doesn't feel good. Like the last time I tried to put together a piece of like Ikea furniture, I was losing my mind because I didn't, I couldn't put it together and it was frustrating and I wasn't, you know, if someone were to be popping in then being like, okay, now do this. I would have been like, shut the F up. I want to, you know, I feel like you need to take a deep breath and be like, take a deep breath and put them. I I saw like a meme the other day that was like, never in the history of someone telling someone to calm down, has that ever worked? (laughs) Because it's so true, um, you know, in those moments. So I love what you mentioned about the preschool skills, because I agree that and that I'm going to link that um, Greg Hanley article, because I love that article as well. I absolutely love him. And I agree that that article highlights a lot of skills that all teachers can read. So even if, you know, you have maybe a junior high class or a later elementary, those kids still might be coming to you as fourth and fifth graders without a lot of those school readiness skills, those group work skills. And I remember one one year of teaching, one of my first years teaching, I had a group that was pretty academic and I really wanted to do bigger groups. And by bigger, I mean like three, four or five students in a group. And I realized very quickly that my kids just didn't have the skills to to learn together. And I maybe spent, I would say, even four or five months just working on 
the skills to learn in a group. Like you said, waiting, taking your turn. And then we could really do guided reading circles and do all of this. But it, it took a long time. Do you see a lot of that with some of your older kids too? Yeah, we have some kids actually we've been working with for a while. And like academically, they are on grade level. Like they are working one-on-one and unfortunately they've gotten into um, sometimes a product of ABA is that you get so used to working one-on-one and we keep pushing and saying that in a classroom, they fall apart. Mm-hmm. Working one-on-one, they're on grade level. They're doing what they need to be doing academically. Like they could do all the math and reading and literacy, but the second you put them in a group without somebody sitting beside them and prompting them through things, um, they don't have those skills to be able to stay on task and attend and, you know, look at what the other kids are doing and imitate and all of that stuff. Teaching independent skills are so huge. So in that situation, you know, if you walk into a typical classroom situation, the teacher is often working with a few students at a time while all the rest of the students are on task doing something. The rest of the students are either doing a worksheet or they're playing with an independent toy activity or they're reading a book or they're doing something but independently because all 20 or 30 kids in a class can't have that teacher's attention all at the same time. And that's one big failure, I would say, of somebody who's working one-to-one with a student. You know, one-to-one, the student gets so prompt-dependent sometimes and having an adult always there. And we forget to teach those skills. We forget to give them something to do and step back. And that's what we need to remind ourselves is as our kids are getting school ready, per se, as they're transitioning into a classroom, we need to make sure that our kids can not only do a worksheet when we're present, but can also stay on task for a good five minutes with us, I don't know, pretending to read a magazine, being in the other room, uh, talking to mom, doing something else when they don't have our attention. Yes, that's such a great point. I Some of like students that I you know work with their clients in schools that have one-to-one aids, it's great because if you have high behavior needs, that's awesome. But like you said, it's that double-edged sword. And I always tell those staff members, which they hate hearing, I say, your job is to lose your job. And they're like, okay. oh and I'm like, you're not really going to lose your job. There'll be more things to work on. But what are some tips for training staff members? Because sometimes it's the greatest paraprofessional I know, but they're just busy bees. They just want to work and do stuff. So how can you help teach this to staff members? The biggest thing that we say is whenever you're looking at the goal that you're teaching, keep that end goal in mind. What is the end goal? And if the end goal is independence, then making sure that they know that. Once a staff knows why they're doing something, it's very helpful for them and they they seem to have more buy-in. But if it is an independence and their end goal is independence, then we need to tell them, whatever you do, don't embed yourself in the teaching interaction. And what do we mean by that? Well, we see a lot of EAs, uh, paraprofessionals, giving verbal prompts. Jimmy, do this this, Billy, do this. Don't forget to do this. Oh, oh, look at right here. They're pointing, they're doing everything. So if they're giving those verbal prompts, if they're giving those gesture cues, if they're right there, they're embedding themselves in the teaching interaction, which sometimes kids need at the beginning. Absolutely. Don't get me wrong. But as we're fading towards independence, students are going to learn that, oh, I can't do this without Miss So-and-So's help. So we really need to go to other things that uh, the teacher or the paraprofessional can point to or use as a cue. So we use a lot of visuals when we're trying to teach independence. So things like visual schedules, things like, um, you know, visual schedules, we talk about that picture schedules, but if a student can read, even just written lists, reminders, to-do lists. 
Um, and in terms of training staff, I think also sometimes the data collection that we put in place is more about training the staff than it is about training the student. Um, if we put in place something like if it's an independent skill, then we might put in place like record the number of prompts that the student required. Um, and then we can go back and be like, he really shouldn't have needed 10 prompts. Like, is this maybe something that we're over prompting um, or how are we prompting? Are we prompting with a verbal, with a gesture, with, you know, a point? Um, so looking at how the therapist is prompting them and then giving them that feedback. Um, and then also, even if you're recording like frequency of, let's say, requesting um, anywhere, then you can set a goal for the therapist and say, you know, I'm going to check in every week and I want to see you getting, you know, 50 mans per day or 100 mans per day. So that sometimes putting the data collection in place that's going to motivate the therapist to, yeah, put herself out of a job yes. <laughs> um, is important. Um, do you have staff ever that push back on the data comp- the piece? Because I have a lot of teachers, a few teachers that I work with right now who they're great data collectors, but they want to do it all themselves. And they say that their staff doesn't want to, which I don't believe. But how do you get that buy-in just in general on the data piece with staff? Um, Sasha, if you have that solution, I'm open to hearing it. <laughs> I know, right? How long do you have? I, that is, I ask these like ridiculous questions. Like I want the magic answer too, please. So please give it to me. Um, so this is a huge struggle and it really depends like where you're working. I would say like, probably if you're in a center, like, you know, where you're controlling everything, then you have more buy-in from the therapist because you're able to say, no, like here are the data streams, you're going to do them or you're, you don't have a job. Um, where I work, I I need a lot more buy-in because what's in it for them to do this. Um, so I think what we're trying to do now is look at reinforcement. So like, what is in it for them to, for the teacher to fill this out? So A, I think they need to see some small wins. They need to be able to see like what this person is telling me to do is going to work. And how do I show them that it's going to work? So when I go in there, I try not to give them like, you know, a huge amount of stuff to do, but I try to give them like a little thing to do that can give them a small success. So if they can, if I can give them one functional communication phrase that they start teaching and being like, wow, like he's using this instead of negative behavior, like I'll do something else. So giving them some small wins. Um, and then also something that we're working on is, um, having there be some sort of reinforcement system for the staff. So when we do see them engaging in data collection and things like that, they could be entered into, you know, some sort of, you know, monthly draw or something like that, where we have to recognize that this is, a lot of people are not trained the way we are. And this is against their nature. It's against their grain. So the same way we take a student or a child and we want them to use words instead of hands, we want teachers to use data instead of what might be their intuition. Um, we have to have motivation in it for them. That's a really, really good point. It is against a lot of people's like nature. Like, yeah, it's not like it's 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 in your and I nature as BCBAs to like see something happening and like let's take some data on that. But that doesn't that's not doesn't seem natural for everyone. Yeah, what I find so common is that teachers always want to have um, the solution. Like they want to solve the problems, and they really come from a place of wanting to help, and they want to be able to come in and try everything and just end the behavior. So they feel like good when they could say, well, you know what, he was having a meltdown and I came over and I said, you're going to stand up right now. Um, and you know, they asserted their control and it works because the kid stands up off the floor. 
Um, and it's hard for them to understand like, yeah, it might've worked now and you might've gotten the result that you wanted, but guess what? He's going to do it again tomorrow because he got what he wanted. So it is a hard shift for people to make as to like why those consequences don't always work in the long term. Yes. Yes. I've actually been talking about that a lot now with like my husband or I did a blog post on this with my own toddler because I, you see in the moment the exact competing contingencies. Like my whole reinforcer as a, for my behavior as a parent is I just want this tantrum done. I don't care what mm-hmm. I got to do. You want to like bring your Barbie to school? Cool, bring your Barbie to school. I don't care. But I'm in doing so making life harder for myself the next day and the next week. But yeah, in that moment, you just, you have blinders on. Yeah, but as a parent, you you get that more. Yeah. Like you understand it more now. Like yeah. why you know, teachers feel that way and other parents feel that way and our clients' parents feel that way. So yeah. But in the moment, man, it feels good. So you're going to, you just want to win. Um, okay, let's kind of go back to something we were talking about before. So we're talking about school readiness skills. And we talked about some of these like waiting and, and independent skills, which are so important. But like you mentioned, one of the components is working with other people. So can you guys talk on maybe play and social skills and how that is important to kind of being a member of a classroom? You bet. <clears throat> you bet. Absolutely. Um, kids absolutely need to start following directions from not only the teachers, but also from peers. So we need to teach them a few things. We need to teach them how to imitate peers if they're not imitating peers. And we also need to teach them how to follow peers' directions and answer peers' questions, um, as well as start to play interactively with kids. So, you know, backing up a second, you know, a lot of our kids will go into a classroom and play with toys, but play with them by themselves or maybe parallel play, but they're not interacting with other peers in the classroom. When we're at circle time, you know, we may see the student following some teacher directions, but they're not copying any of the peers' actions or lining up when other kids line up at the door or look at what other kids are looking at if the whole group is looking at something. So your question was, how do we teach those skills? Um, If I could wave my magic wand and just- I told you I was going to have big questions for you guys. (laughs) Um, You know, I think what we need to do is we need to start thinking a little bit smaller than that, because, you know, if we start thinking, well, this kid needs this and this and this and this and this, it's really, really overwhelming for everyone. So pick one, pick two skills maybe to teach at the beginning. Some of the very first important skills would be number one, communication, you know, and can that student communicate their needs in a classroom? Can they communicate their needs not only to a teacher, but to another peer? If they can't do it to a peer, one thing that you could do is during say group snack time, you could take all of the snack away and give it to one specific kid. And then our kiddos, the student that we're you know, trying to increase requesting would have to ask the other peer for the group snack. Can I have this? Can I have that? Um, and that would be one way to try and increase some of the requesting skills during arts and during an arts and crafts activity, have only one glue stick that needs to be passed around to all the peers in the group instead of having 20 glue sticks available, you know, having only one of the most popular colors of crayons. So not only do kids need to learn how to share, but they also need to learn how to ask for that. So that would be one way to teach communication skills amongst peers. Um, you know, another way to teach interaction in general would be reinforcement. So, you know, thinking about it, well, what's in it for the peer? So in terms of that requesting, like I mentioned, what's in it for the peer, they get the blue crayon that they want. You know, they get the glue stick, they get the cracker at snack time. What's in it for them to copy other kids? Well, you know, if they copy other kids and they line up, then 
something happens, you know, maybe there's a sticker chart or maybe there is um, some point system or something else in place for that. Um, and in teaching social skills, like we have a lot of kids who social skills are not natural necessarily. And we have to, again, understand that we're, we have to offer them some, like what's in it for them to socialize. Like they're very happy to play by themselves. They're very happy to, you know, do their own thing. Um, so picking those moments in the day where they might be motivated because they're peer has their favorite snack. So using those opportunities to get them to ask for it. And also remembering that it's okay to like, you know, pull two kids aside and do a little bit more of a contrived teaching situation. Like some people feel like, well, if he's not playing, you know, I have to get him to play where there's 10 other kids and it's, it's busy and there's, you know, there's messy carpet and there's so much going on. Like a lot of kids would be overwhelmed by that. So sometimes I'll recommend that, you know, pull one or two kids aside, get them to like a quiet area. Like, remember this kid is learning a new skill. Like it's not natural for them. So have reinforcement be available. It can be contrived. You could say to them, you know what, we're going to practice asking, you know, Joe for the puzzle pieces as you're building the puzzle and they're going to do it over and over again. They're going to access reinforcement. It's going to become more of a skill and then they can generalize it to that messy carpet when there's so much going on and, and it's crazy. Yeah, that's, those are great suggestions because they're also really simple. You don't need a lot of stuff. You can just switch up little things that you're doing that have, you know, such a big impact. Like I always say when teaching like problem solving skills, our kids have to run into problems. Like we make it too easy for them. We like set everything up all perfect. But if things are messed up a little, they are motivated to communicate or, you know, I love the idea of asking the peer for the snacks and things like that. It's nothing that massive that you're changing, but it could have such a big impact. Oh yeah. I mean, we have sometimes like a shadow or a therapist working with a child. Um, sometimes what we'll tell them to do is instead of supporting the child that you're supposed to be working with, go around and like make friends with all the, with all the peers. So like you can set up situations where, you know, tell the peer to grab the toy away from the kid and see what he's going to do, or tell the peer to to do something where the kid has to ask for help or create these situations where that really can be that, you know, shadows or therapist role is getting those peers to be on their side or on their team to work with them and contrive those situations. Love that. Do you have any suggestions in the school for maybe a self-contained teacher that doesn't have, you know, peers that have a little bit more language that they can kind of pair up together on how to get those opportunities for those interactions? Um, yeah, that's hard. I mean, the place where, where I, where I work is that we try to not put all the kids who struggle with the same thing together. Mm -hmm. So we try to mix it up so that if there's one kid struggling with social skills, there might be another kid who's struggling with something else, but might be very social. So it's a better chance to match them up together so they can like play off of each other. So I think that that's a good place to start is when you're grouping the kids, try not to group them where they're all struggling with the same thing. Um, Yeah. I would also use a lot of visuals. So, you know, if you're trying to teach conversation skills, you know, depending on what the level is like in the class, let's say, for instance, you've got a bunch of students who are speaking in, say, three-word phrases and starting to ask some questions, but they that, that's all they're able to do. You may want to set up some really small groups. So grab two kids who are, um, you know, maybe not functioning at the same ability, but, you know, one's got you know, more skilled than the other in a certain area. And you can use visuals to contrive simple questions back and forth. So do you like pizza? Yes. No. Do you like cats? Do you like dogs? Just a very, very simple conversation. And that's where it can start. And you can grow from there. And, you know, the way you get some of that is through the use of visuals. Yeah, that's a great point. And we can also look at the classroom as even though they're not necessarily being social because the kids aren't 
able to have those opportunities or it's not in the right type of setting, they could still learn those skills. You could still learn and practice and reinforce and, and you may not be able to get to the generalization step, but you can still work on contriving the situations where at least you've taught them the skill and they could take it elsewhere. Contriving is key because I think if you just wait around for those situations to come, they might never come. Like you said, like some kids might just be, I'm just chill over here playing with my iPad. Like, let me know when it's my work time. And that opportunity to kind of even monitor that peer interaction just might never develop naturally. Yeah, but that's such a challenge to like get somebody motivated to contrive a situation (laughs) because most people just want to wait until you know, I have to do it or it becomes a problem. Um, but yeah, like impressing among people the importance of like, no, you have to make it happen. Like you have to create the learning opportunities um, is really important. Yeah. Cause you're right in the moment, like life is simpler when everyone's playing alone and it's like chill and quiet, but you're like, yeah. and it, it's going to get messier and that's, you know, that's okay. Yeah. Last week I actually was contriving a situation for a kid who's, you know, learning minimally verbal uses an iPad or whatever. So I was, he was trying to get somewhere and I was blocking him like with my body. I was trying to get him to say, excuse me. Um, and he has those words. So he was capable of it. And I just kept kind of nagging him (laughs) and I would block him. And he said it once and I let him go. And then we tried it again and I got pinched because he got frustrated. (laughs) So unless you do it enough and you have enough practice, like watch out. Yeah. But like you said, it's like the long-term reinforcement of once kids are starting to learn those skills, you know, as from the teacher's perspective, you're going to be able to teach larger groups of kids because kids will have more of those skills to work together. Yeah. Like in the long run, it does make their job easier, but it's harder to see that in the short run, especially when you're dealing with like extinction bursts and, or they'll try something and they'll be like, Oh, it's not working. I had one teacher who, um, we made a suggestion for like a certain token board and it was just kind of, it didn't have to be that way, but it was just a suggestion after like the first day of school. Um, they, a kid had attempted to like put it in their mouth and that was the end of token boards. So like we try to say like, no, you have to come back. Like we'll talk about it. We'll figure out something that works. But in the short term, it was like, no, it didn't work because they tried to eat it. Yeah. Like, token boards do work. We just have to figure out a way to make it like more workable. So yeah, we get into those types of issues. Yeah. Flexibility is hard for everyone. <laughs> oh, I hear that. <laughs> Um, one, one note that I took from one of your videos that I wanted to touch on, cause I see this mistake a lot. I think it was actually the school readiness video was teaching those kind of appropriate phrases to talk to peers with, because I, I was in a high school recently and they were teaching a high school boy, 15 or 6 year old to greet his peers. And they were practicing just with the adults in the room. And they were practicing him saying, hello, Hi. And I was like, when have you ever seen a 15 year old in this building greet a peer by going, hi, like, so I like made the teachers go in passing period and wait in the hallway and like creep and watch the kids and 15 year old boys, when they greet each other, they don't even talk. They like make eye contact and do the little nod and that's it. Or a fist pump or like sup. Like that's it. That's as, that's as much as we're getting. So I was like, that's what we have to teach him. And one of your videos, you mentioned like, you know, when we teach kids to initiate play, not teaching like, Hey, do you want to play? Cause the kids are going to be like, no, I don't. <laughs> no, don't really. No. So um, like, what are other scenarios that you see, like kind of using better phrases that are, that will be more likely to be reinforced? 
So, you know, you talked about uh, creeping the hallway in a high school. I like to creep playgrounds, not on a bad basis. <laughs> I, when I bring my daughter to the playground, I will listen to what other kids say. And, you know, what are some of the things that other kids are saying? You know, to your point, Sasha, you know, kids are just copying each other to get in. So they may just join by running along with somebody else and playing without any language whatsoever, which actually really benefits our kids because some of our kids don't talk. So if we can teach some really good imitation skills, then we actually have it made. Um, you know, some of the other phrases that I hear lots in the playground are things like, what are you doing? What's that? Um, so those are good ways to get in. Look at this. So you're making more uh, comments on things that other kids are doing or comments on things you're doing to try and get into the situation instead of an actual pointed question of, will you be my friend? Do you want to play with me? Things like that. And something else that we've taught the kids is to recognize like what the other child is playing with. So if there's a student playing with like cars or something, then they can go over and find like a matching toy and bring it over and say something like, oh, I have a car. And that way there's no like, you know, rejection or anything, but they could just have a related toy and that will get them in. Um, we have another student who was taught, I guess, as a younger kid to like, you know, hug people and be like very affectionate. And as students get older, like it doesn't, it doesn't really work as well. Um, so we're teaching him to do something, like you said, like a fist pump instead, because as he gets older, like that's more appropriate than, you know, going over and giving somebody a hug. Um, so looking at like what their environment is like, what their, how old they are, like what the norms are for that child, um, and then teaching them accordingly. Yeah, so often I think parents too, special ed teachers, we kind of forget what our like grade level peers are doing. So like I always tell teachers like ask for 15 minutes to observe in the sixth grade classroom, in the sophomore English class. Like what does their room look like? Does your room look like theirs at all? Because I'm like very passionate about age appropriate things for our older guys. Like you shouldn't have colored bears in your junior high classroom. Like we can't be playing with preschool toys. So your room should look like that their room in some ways, but the language that you're teaching should also mimic that language. Yeah. I mean, I think the best thing for us has been that like we have kids so that we know like you know, I know what like a 12, a 10 and eight year old are doing yeah. at all times. Um, and I think it goes the other way also that sometimes we get these expectations, but we're like, the kid has this negative behavior and, and he's, you know, not doing his homework. And I'm like, guess what? My kid isn't either. So we have to have like realistic expectations of knowing like what is, what can be expected of them? And what do like typical kids do in terms of both the skill acquisition and like what are appropriate negative behaviors that are totally age appropriate? Yes. I see that so much in preschool. Like, like you mentioned waiting, like programs for, you know, a three or a four-year-old that's like just waiting for like three minutes. I'm like, you find me a three-year-old that just sits and waits with no, like not really even for anything for three minutes. Oh yeah. I had this, um, a student was, um, has a hard time sitting and waiting. And this is a huge scale. And so we had somebody creating a program to get him to sit at lunch. But realistically, the kid is only eating lunch for like maybe three to five minutes. And the goal that they wanted to put in place was that this student sits for 15 minutes. I'm like, what is he doing from minute five to minute 15? They're like, he's sitting. I'm like, no. I sit for 10 minutes without anything to do. No. There's no purpose in him sitting for 10 minutes just to show you that he can sit. So then we talked about, well, let's make this functional. Like, you know, can he engage in some sort of independent activity schedule while the rest of the kids are finishing their lunch? Can he do a chore? Can he clean up? Can he, you know, what is it that he's sitting for? And I think about um, creating goals that are not just goals that make us feel like, yeah, now he can sit and wait, but that are functional and that are going to serve a purpose. 
Yes, I with the waiting thing all the time. I don't know if you guys ever catch yourself doing this. If there's like a long train going by and I'm in my car, I'm like on Instagram, I'm on my email. Like I can't as an adult even wait that long. So like then we're expecting even our little kids to do that. Yeah, yeah. We have to remind ourselves of that. Like what is realistic or like we don't want to just get caught up in like, well, it's a goal for the point of having a goal so that we can have data and we can say that we did something. Sasha, you mentioned data collection before. Sometimes what I'll have our um, our therapists do is actually take data, not only on our student, but also on two other students in the class. So I'll say, okay, if I'm going to a mainstream class, I'm going to take data on the goody two-shoes in the class, because there's always one of those, you know, <laughs> the girl at the front who is always raising her hand, um, as well as, you know, the kid who's sitting at the back, who's, you know, probably off task a little bit, both mainstream kids, both pretty typical kids, and I'm going to take data on our kid. Our kid needs to fall in the middle of those two kids. If we teach our student to be too perfect, more perfect than the goody two shoes, that's going to look very bizarre, you know, and we also need our kid to look, you know, at least on task with the least off task kid in the class. But recognizing what that task does is it rec- it makes other people recognize that there's kids in that classroom who are off task some of the time. You know what? Most kids don't sit in circle time for 100% of the time, you know, most of them are at about 50, 60, 70% of the time. And, you know, there are some mainstream kids who don't sit at all. So we can't expect our students to have unrealistic expectations. Yeah, no one ever engages in 0% off-task behavior, like ever in any activity. Like even at, you know, my favorite TV shows, I'm, I'm catching myself doing something else because even if something is really reinforcing, you still get distracted and there's competing contingencies going on. Absolutely. That's such a great point. Okay, I feel like I need, I have like so many things I want to talk to you guys about, but I'm going to pick a last question because, um, but so many great suggestions here. And I love how everything, like I said, is just very, you know, action oriented. Like you don't have to create a bunch of stuff. You can go in and kind of do this quickly. So kind of continuing on talking about like play and social skills, what are some everyday things that mom and dad or teachers or paraprofessionals can be doing to kind of increase those communication opportunities? The, the, you know, it can be just an everyday. So what are some kind of your simple go-to suggestions for getting our kids to socialize, communicate a little more? The first thing would be make it fun. Play needs to be fun. You know, why do typical kids engage in play? Because it's fun. So, you know, our kids need to have fun at this. Parents need to have fun when they're playing with their kids. Um, Therapists need to have fun when they're playing with their kids. And if everyone's, you know, if if parents and, and therapists are having fun, it emanates and you can see that as well. So that's definitely the very first thing. Yeah. And I think like not getting too caught up in the data, like sometimes we get so worried about like, well, are they making progress? Um, and just trying to like read the child and, and understand like, how can we make this situation or how can we contrive the situation so that we can make it more fun or get them to communicate more? Um, so some suggestions, like a really easy suggestion is like, you can put their preferred toys or activities into like containers that they can't open, um, or put them up on a high shelf so they can't access them so that that way you're creating situations where they have to come to you and they have to ask you to play with them um, or having toys where they can't do everything on their own, where they need your help, where they need to get you to twist something or open it or turn it or anything like that. Um, Just creating ways where the adult or the other person is reinforcing. And if they're not reinforcing, why does the child want to play with you? Yeah. Yeah. We don't like talking to people that we don't like, and that's totally normal. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, well, thank you guys so much. I know you both are very busy, so I really appreciate you taking the time to chat on so many topics, and this was really helpful and really interesting. 
Thank Thanks you so, so much. much and speaking of speaking of things that are practical and actionable, we did want to like give something practical to like all your listeners. So um, we did create a little tip sheet of like how to get your students to like tolerate transitions. So just what types of like antecedent strategies that you can use or you can implement right away that could hopefully make transitions a little bit smoother. So it's on our blog, howtoeba.com slash transitions. Um, and you can download that and hopefully people will find it really useful. Awesome. I will link that in the show notes too. And those, those like quick tip sheets are great for, you know, staff trainings and too. So I know that will be really helpful for everyone. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you you so much. Thank you. Shira and Shayna are such a wealth of information and I hope you learned a lot from them. Definitely head over to their website, howtoaba.com or check them out on Facebook. They have a ton of great free resources. I think their short videos would be amazing for staff training because they explain different ABA concepts in a really direct and simple way. Um, Hope you enjoyed this episode and thanks for listening. Did you know that two out of three teachers turn to Teachers Pay Teachers for educational resources? As a seller on TPT, this makes me so excited. I love seeing educators turn to other educators for support in their classrooms. There are so many great resources on Teachers Pay Teachers. And this could be made even better if we could involve school budgets in this process. Enter TPT for Schools. TPT for Schools makes it easy for administrators and teachers to collaborate when making curricular decisions. TPT helps you set up a way of using school funds for these resources. This is a new program and there's already over 5,000 schools registered. In the special ed world, this is even more important because we don't have that many resources and the resources that are provided for us might not be so appropriate for our class. To learn more about TPT for Schools, visit schools.teacherspayteachers.com. Thanks for listening to the Autism Helper podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to me if you left some feedback. Whether I'm working one-on-one with a student, doing a podcast like this one, or presenting for a PD, my goal is always to provide as much value as I can. So your feedback really helps me make sure I'm doing just that. If you have other topics you'd like me to cover, leave in the feedback or message me on social media. You can follow me at The Autism Helper on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest, or visit my website, theautismhelper.com. Thanks again for listening. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Having the right resources for your classroom is essential to making sure your classroom is running smoothly. At the Autism Helper Shop, we have all of the resources you need to make sure you have the behavior, communication, and curriculum supports for your students. Within our shop, we have adapted books, task cards, resources aligned to the VB map and the ABLES, behavior plan flowcharts, data sheets, curriculum, 
everything you need, whether you are an early childhood teacher or a high school teacher, we have all of the resources that will meet those students' needs. So head over to shop.theautismhelper.com to check out all of our resources.